0: Our sermon this morning is on the parable of the prodigal son. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. We'll find that it's kind of a continuation of uh, what we heard last week, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Same context, same audience, same people. Jesus is answering and responding to the same uh, you know, objection from the religious leaders. Uh, in fact, I mean, very similar point, uh, maybe just kind of expound it a little bit. If, if, if last week in Luke 15, verses 1 through 10, uh, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, we kind of looked at the heart of God, the gracious, loving heart of God that pursues the lost and saves them and celebrates when they're saved. This is the exact same uh, message, the exact same theme in this text, but it also kind of expands a little bit. It's more robust, and it looks not only at the heart of God for lost people and how he celebrates saving them, but also uh, our response and kind of varying ways that we can respond to the grace of God and to our loving Father and these, these kinds of things. The prodigal son is uh, one of the most well-known passages in all of, in all of Scripture, Um, I mean, the language itself kind of works its way into our vernacular today. You know, you'll you'll hear religious and non-religious circles alike. You'll hear hear people refer to someone as as prodigals if they wander away or if someone leaves and comes back. They'll say, oh, the prodigal son has uh, returned. Um, And so parables are... Uh, one of jesus's you know preferred methods of teaching there's there's dozens of parables throughout the course of scripture but this one seems to stand out as maybe just the most famous the the most well i mean maybe this one along with the good samaritan are probably like you know the two first ballot hall of famers in terms of uh, jesus's parables that that are widely known and so I was thinking this week about why that is. What, what is it about the Good Samaritan? What is it about the, the prodigal son that makes them so well-known, more so than any other parable that, that Jesus tells? And, um, you know, one I think one is because of just the, the content, the, the theological content and truths that are being communicated in them. They just strike a chord with us in, in a particular way. They They speak to the love of God. They speak to salvation and redemption. All of these, like, you know, things that are kind of, you know in our hearts something that we're longing for and that we love hearing about and we love hearing rehearsed over and over uh th- these kind of speak to it god's grace human sin pride self righteousness th- these these you know parables just have a unique way of kind of confronting us in our sin and kind of exposing our flaws but also uh, encouraging us and and reminding us of god's uh, of god's grace but uh, another, but these two parables, in particular, the Prodigal Son and the Good Samaritan, they also are unique in that they 're just very long and they're they're, they're uh, expansive narratives, uh, and they're they 're just good stories. A lot of Jesus' parables are very short, uh, you know a few sentences, sometimes even just a few words, but these have you know uh, you know, multiple characters and complex, you know, fascinating story. Charles Dickens uh, called the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, the greatest short story ever told, which is high praise because Charles Dickens is one of the best, you know, authors of, of all time. And so I think that so they're probably famous because, again, they're unique in what they teach, but they're also unique in that they're just a captivating story. You can tell it to a child and it's entertaining and fun and they enjoy it, but it also Adults can spend extended periods of time reading them and studying them and trying to, you know, uh, discuss them and, and figure out what is being told in in them. So, uh, let's we're going to go ahead and read through Luke fifteen eleven to thirty two, the parable of the prodigal son, and then we'll spend a few minutes uh, discussing it and considering how we can apply it to our lives. It reads, and he said, there was a young man, or there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but here I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead And he refused to go in. And his father came out and and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, comes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting that we to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless uh, the reading of your word. Uh, that you would help us to hear it and understand it. We pray that you would bless uh, these next few minutes as we meditate on your word. We pray that you would use it to change us and sanctify us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we'll start in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger son comes to the father. Give me my share of the property that is coming to me. This is probably a teenager Right, um, most most males got married around the age of twenty. So this guy is uh, still single, in all likelihood, he is, uh, you know, a younger uh, a younger male, right on the verge of adulthood. He goes to his father, "Give me my share of the properties, referring to his inheritance. And so, you know, the uh, inheritance was like a, a standard uh, kind of. There was no like. Every inheritance was the same and every kind of uh, you know way of passing wealth from one generation to the next was the same. It was kind of established as a, as a custom. It would just be split evenly between all of the male children except the firstborn male would get a double portion. He would get a, a receive double um, inheritance. And so this man has two sons. So essentially his estate upon his death would be divided into thirds. Two-thirds would go to the older brother. One-third would go to the younger brother. But like today, that would only happen when... You, when you die. Right? That, that wouldn't happen when you are uh, alive. And it would, be, it would not be customary. In fact, it would be entirely inappropriate for a son to ask his father for his share of the inheritance while he is still alive. He's essentially saying, right, all, everything that is going to be coming to me when you die, so all of your you know, money, investments, right, all of the equity in your home, uh, possessions, retirement, you know, four hundred and one k savings, you know, and and he was a business owner. He he kind of had had his own business. So so I want you to I want you to fire a third of your employees and take the nest egg that is used to fund their salaries. I want a third of of that right business equipment, office space. You know, I want, I want a third of everything, and I want—I want to take it all. I want to gather it all, as as I want to, you know, make it ready cash that I can use to spend on anything that I I want. And I don't want that when you die, like I'm, you know, in line to receive at that point. I don't want to have to wait for you to die to get your money. I want it now because, you know, the 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 reality is, I love your money. More than I love you, and if I, if I, Father, if I had to choose between uh, you being with you, living with you, having a relationship with you, and having your money, I would choose the money. You, you, to, as far as I'm concerned, you're a means to an end. And if if you, if your dying is the only thing standing in the way between me and your money, then I wish that you would just die because because I, your money is what I really want. This is a son saying this to his. Father, right? His his father who raised him. His father who uh, you know taught him, taught him his ABCs, taught him how to throw a baseball, right? His father who is building this incredible life for his son where he has everything that he will ever need. And, and, you know, he's kind of building this life where his son, who he loves, he can spend his life with his father. He can, you know, as his father grows into old age, his son can be there to be with him and experience it. Eventually he'll, he's planning on his son burying him when he dies, taking over the family business, continuing the legacy. This is the, the life that the father has prepared for his son. And this son says, I don't, I don't want any of that crap. I, I, I don't want, all I want is uh, the money and I want to leave. So I don't have to see you again. And you don't have to see me again. This is a, this is a bad son. He's ungrateful and he is inconsiderate and he does not love his father and he does not appreciate what his father has done for him to this point. And then the father divides his property between his two sons. So even in spite of in spite of the audacity of this request, the father uh, meets it. The father goes above and beyond what he has to do. He goes above and beyond what's reasonable to do. He goes above and beyond what anyone else would do. And he, he does so just to, to give his son, just, just to give and give and give, just to, to give his son more and more of what, he wants. You're probably the the people hearing this are probably thinking that's a bad idea. Don't divide your property. Don't give it to this son. He's he's already spoiled. He's already got in some entitlement issues. He's already got a victim complex. So you can't feed into it. If you give, if you keep giving to him, you're just going to foster and contribute to this you know uh, this culture of entitlement that is already happening in his heart. And the father is not worried about that. He he. He's got a singular focus, which is that he loves his son and he wants to give good things to his son, even at his own expense. Now, what's also interesting at this point, uh, so so the younger son goes to the father, demands his money, the father gives it to him. We have no mention up till this point of the older brother. You might expect, right, you, you might expect the older brother at this point to step in and to say, dad, don't do it, right? They'd like, Dad, I have your best interest in mind. I have long-term vision of where we're going together in mind. This, this brother of mine is making an inappropriate request, so please don't do it. The, the older brother is nowhere to be found. Uh, in all likelihood, he's probably uh, out working, just like he's going to be uh, a few verses later. He's, wherever he is, he's not here, and he's not uh, stepping in and interceding for his father. He's got his own plans, his own agenda. He's pursuing his own ends. He's doing that now, just like he will be doing uh, at the end of the, the story. So the the younger son, by all means, by all accounts, is a bad son who does not love his father and does not appreciate his father. But the older son doesn't seem to care much about his father either up until this point. He seems unconcerned with, with the fact that a third of his father's net worth is about to walk out the door. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property with reckless living. If the initial request was offensive, was shocking, and it was, right? Father, uh, uh, everything that you're going to give me when you die, I want it now. I don't care about you. I only care about your stuff, so give it to me. That is offensive. That is shocking. This would be even more shocking, the thought that he would then go and liquidate all of that and and essentially part with it and, and go into a foreign country, right? You don't, you don't do that in first century Israel ever. If you... If you go back to the, the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, the better part of the book of Joshua is uh, an explanation of how boundary lines were drawn out. This tribe gets from this place straight east to this place. And then, you know, and it's like all of these like quadrants are kind of mapped out in Israel. And every family, as it were, got a piece of land of so, some property that was theirs. And it was meant to be their family's property forever, like into perpetuity. In fact, uh, Leviticus 25 uh, outlines and details the rules regarding the sale of land. And if you read it, if you read Leviticus 25, what you'll see is that you didn't really sell land in the nation of Israel in the, in the, the ancient world. Uh, selling land more or less amounted to a long-term lease because it was all based on uh, these particular points when all of the land would be given back to the original families that it was originally given to when Israel came in and took the, the land. So it was almost like, you know, uh, at worst you would part with your land temporarily if you're starving or if it's a matter of life and death, but you don't ever, no one would ever sell their land and leave it permanently so that they could get money for, for drugs and, and alcohol and, and prostitutes. That is the not even the worst scoundrel would do that, because everyone had this common understanding that this land that God gave us as a gift, our, our forefathers, our ancestors came in and they, they were given this land as a gift. This land is worth more than the money that you could get for it. It is. It it represents God's covenant to us. Our ancestors were enslaved in Egypt, and God faithfully brought them out, and He brought them through the wilderness for decades, and then He brought them through the Red Sea, and He gave us this land and this land that you can touch and put your hands and feet on. It is a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness to our people. It's not. It's not just a, a. a sum of money that you can spend on things to to sell your land and to leave the country is not only spitting in your father's face, but it's spitting in God's face. And that's exactly what this son does. He leaves his home. He leaves his country. He leaves the covenant people of God. He chews through his money at a record pace. He finds himself dead broke, and then and then famine hits. Then a, a recession uh, hits. And and you know prices skyrocket. You can't buy food. Unemployment rate through the roof. There's no jobs to be to be had. No way to get what you need in order to to live on. The only job that this guy can find is to hire himself out to a Gentile pagan landowner, who I mean, from the looks of it, is more more or less a human trafficker, based on how he is compensating uh, this younger son for his work. He says, "I'll employ you." I'll give you something to do just to keep your hands busy, but I'm not going to pay you enough to have anything to eat. I'm going to pay you so little that you won't even be able to afford. Right? Your job is going to be to feed my pigs garbage and, and you know, trash, and you won't even be able to afford to buy that to eat if you wanted to. This is a Jewish son, a Jewish brother, so pigs are, you know, you can't eat pork. Pigs are unclean. You can't even be around them. And here's this kid. Now his job is tending to pigs, touching pigs, being defiled by wallowing in mud and filth and species from the, from the pigs, and, and, and he, he, this, this, this represents life. I mean, if, if the first few verses were to represent this kid, this son, being as bad of a son as you could possibly imagine, these verses are meant to communicate that his predicament, he has now fallen into the worst circumstances that you could possibly imagine. This is the worst kid you could think of, and now the worst thing that could happen has happened to him. And he's, you know, the, the he's probably, he's prob- this, this point of the story, the Pharisees and the religious leaders that are in Jesus' audience are probably quite happy with what they, with what they are hearing. Right, they're probably high-fiving each other because this is justice. This is, you know, like, up until this point, God's reputation, God's name, God's glory had been besmirched, and, and God had been, uh, you know, belittled. And now God is, is kind of, his reputation is being restored with this depraved, wicked sinner is getting what he deserves. In verse 17, he comes to his senses. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Here I am dying of starvation. I'm going to go to my father, but I'm not going to come back as a son. I'm not going to say that I want, to, I want the, the status of sonship that I had before I left. I recognize that I don't deserve it, so I'll come back even just as a servant. So he quits his job. He starts the long journey home. He's rehearsing uh, these, this kind of like spiel that he's going to say to his father as he gets home. And, and as he, you know, right when you can like see his home on the horizon, he's kind of on the, the home stretch as it were, and he's almost home. His father runs out to him. His father runs out to him, and, and he's, he feels compassion, and he embraces him. And he kisses him. As shocking as the initial request is, as shocking as the liquidation of assets was, as shocking as the predicament in the, the, with the pigs was, this is meant to be shocking as, as well. right? You would expect the father to be livid. You would expect the father to be furious. You would, you would expect the father to leave the son outside and to, you know, or, or to punish him with some sort of swift and, and terrible... Pun- in fact, the old t- in Deuteronomy 21... the the explicit uh, command of how to deal with a son like that. Deuteronomy 21 says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father, then all the men of the city shall stone him with stones. So this son deserves to be killed, publicly executed by all the men in the town. So for him to come back for, you know For him to come back and, and ask for anything other than just a quick swift punishment is an astonishingly bold request, and so what we 'd expect when the father is running out to the son we 'd expect him to run out to to uh, humiliate him to to punish him, but he runs out while he 's a long way off, mind you right so, so this implies that That the father is looking, and he's expecting, and he's hoping, and he's longing that his son might one day return. He's looking out, right? He's, you know, and he immediately runs out to his son. So this is a father who never forgot that his son left, and never stopped hoping that his son would come back. And as soon as he sees his son on the horizon, he runs to him. Running is not something old men did. Running is not something old men do now. But running is certainly not something that old men did in the first century. They would wear these big, long, flowing robes. It looked like a wedding dress, right? Like a big, long robe that would drag on the floor, and you'd kind of just saunter, you know, around and kind of, Oversee and you'd lounge, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't really. You you weren't. Old men didn't wear things that lent themselves to running or athletics of any kind. And so, in order to run, if, if you have, you'd have to pick up all of these, like these trains of your robe, the big long robe, and you'd have to tuck it into your belt. Everyone could see your legs and your thighs and your. Underwear. It was embarrassing and it was undignified. It was undignified for old men to, to run in the first century. It was a young man. Like oh, running is for slaves and servants and young people that are wearing less clothes that can run without embarrassing themselves. This father does not care at all. He's not he's not interested in maintaining his public image. He's not interest, He's he's not concerned about uh, embarrassing himself. He's only concerned about. Uh, Being with his son and embracing him and kissing him. The son starts his spiel, right? Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned before you, but before he can even finish the father says bring the best robe and put it on right so so bring the best robe bring the uh, a ring on his finger sandals on his feet servants right so he says i am not worthy to be called your son i'll just be a servant servants went around barefoot sons wore shoes right? Robe, like I said, is what the bosses wore. You didn't wear a robe if you're doing manual labor. You wore a robe if you're lounging around, giving orders, telling people what to do. If you were working, if you were a servant, you didn't wear a robe. And if you, you wore a ring, if you were in the, you wore a ring if you were a made man, right? In the inner circle of the family, you can you know, you can mess with anyone and they can't mess with you because you've got a family with like the signet, you know, image of the, the family crest is on it. So he says, bring shoes that are for children. Bring robes that are for people that are v- valuable and they are not uh, e- expendable, right? Bring a ring that's for, for the inner circle of my family that I love, right? Bring all of these things and put them. This is an extravagant welcome that says, no way will you ever be treated like a servant, in this, in this house. You're my son. You have always been my son, and you will always be my son. There's nothing that you could do that would cause me to stop loving you. And they begin to celebrate. It's a big party, right? Best food, fattened calf best drink, music, dancing. This is, a, this is probably like a wedding, right? Some sort of like big party like that we would imagine today. Tons of people are invited, spare no expenses, right? Unconditional love and mercy. My wife and I are reading a book uh, called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And over and over, the author kind of reads, you know, works through all of these stories in the Old Testament and New Testament. And he he's constantly showing, she's constantly showing how, um, The love of God is illustrated through each of these stories, and she refers to it as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. In every chapter, you'll see that phrase repeated over and over. God loves his people with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. And that's what's on display here, right? That's how the father loves his son. Big party, all the preparations, speakers, dance floor, right? all of this stuff. You would expect at this point, again, you'd expect with, this, with all of the commotion, all of the equipment, all of the noise, everything, all of the excitement of the father, you would expect the older brother to be aware of what's happening. To to be around, to be coordinating details, to be involved in the the planning in some way, but he's not. The older brother, which we'll see uh, in verses 25 and following, he was out in the field. He's working. He's nowhere near his father. He's unaware of what his father's doing. He's unconcerned with the things that matter most to the father. And back in verse 12, he was conspicuously absent when he had an opportunity to advocate for his father. But he was off pursuing his own agenda, and here he's conspicuously absent when he has an opportunity to to merge and align himself with the heart of his father, but he's off pursuing his own agenda. So he comes home, long day of work, asks what it is, the servant says, your brother is back, your father is excited, he's throwing a party, you should be excited too, come in and enjoy the party. But he was angry, and he refused to go in, right, sulking, he's upset, Right? I'm not, I'm not, I want nothing to do with this party. I'm not going to celebrate this loser brother of mine. Right? He just had to go off on his, you know... His rum spring, he had to go like just do his thing and wait you know waste all of this money on all kinds of sinful indulgences. He had to set our family back years and decades in the process, right? This like family business and this like you know this empire that my father has been building and his father before him and his father before him, now we've been set back for generations, and the older brother resented his younger brother. And the older brother resented the thought of his younger brother receiving grace that he did not deserve. He's outside and he's sulking. And the father uh, hears that he's out there and he comes out and he entreats him. Notice Notice the symmetry, right? The symmetry between, so here's the younger brother who leaves the home, leaves the country, wastes all of this money. This younger brother who represents sinners and tax collectors and he, uh, in the in the crux of the story, he's outside of the home, outside of the property. The father goes out to him so that he can hug him and kiss him and welcome him and invite him into this big party. The younger brother is alienated from the father. He's separated from the father. The father goes to him and extends grace to him and welcomes him in. And now, there's There's the older brother who represents the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he, too, is outside. He, too, is separated from his father. He, too, is alienated from his father. The father goes out to him and entreats him and invites him in. Both brothers are separated from their father, one just as much as the other. One by rebellion, right? And and one by self-imposed Obligations, But both are separated from their father, and the father loves both of them more than anything in the world, one just as much as the other, so much so that for either one of them, he will leave his home, leave the party, go out to where they are, and try to bring them in. The older brother says, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. You never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. His complaint seems to... Seems to expose. It seems to uh, indicate where his heart has been the whole entire time, right? He effect, he effectively says, "Father, I have never seen myself as a son anyway, right? All these years, I've slaved for you. I've been a a slave. I've been a servant. I've never disobeyed your command." And you've never even given me a goat, right? So so I haven't been serving you. I haven't been uh, doing what you ask because I love you and because I want to bless you and because I have been affected by your love and your affection for me and I want to respond by obeying you and, and uh, you know, loving you and giving you what you want. I've been serving you so that I can... Uh, he, he has the same exact priorities that the younger brother has the younger brother says they just go about it in different ways i want i don't want you father i want your money so give it to me now so i can leave and go do what i want and the older brother says i don't love you i want your money but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stoop so low as to demand it and leave i'm just going to work myself into the ground and and put you in my debt so that you have to give me the things that i want The older brother has the same exact heart as the younger brother. He just has a different way of pursuing it. One tries through rebellion and self-indulgence to get what they want, and the other tries through religion and self-righteousness to get what they want. But here's what's remarkable. What's remarkable is that the father treats this older brother better than he deserves just like he treated the younger brother better than he deserved, right? He could have punished the younger brother. The law says he could have stoned him to death and instead he hugs him, welcomes him, throws a party for him. And he could have rebuked this older brother, he could have disowned him he could have shunned him and instead he entreats him and he invites him in son you are always with me all that is mine is yours which is true at this point uh, a third of the inheritance has been given to the younger son so everything that the older that the father has is going to the older brother. Everything that's mine is yours. It's fitting that we celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and is found. Notice the language, right? Look what the older brother says, right? All these years I have served you, never disobeyed your command, but this son of yours comes home. So he won't refer to his brother as his brother anymore, right? I I have, he's cut off. As far as I'm concerned, he's a nobody. He's a stranger. This son of yours, and the, and the father corrects his language. He says, it's fitting to celebrate, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. Older brothers tend to resent younger brothers. Younger brothers tend to resent older brothers, right? The, the, the older brother says, you know, you left, you you betrayed the family, you wasted our money, you're a bad son, I want nothing to do with you. And the father pushes back and says, right, I, I love you, I am going to welcome you, I'm going to throw a party on your behalf. Younger brothers tend to resent the older brothers, right? Kind of a reverse like self-righteousness about self-righteousness, right? right? I'm, I might be a sinner, but at least I am honest about it. You're You are a jerk. You're judgmental. You think you're better than everyone. You are the reason why I left in the first place. And the father pushes back against that by going out to the older brother and entreating him to come inside. And that's it. That's the end of the the story just ends. We don't know what happens. We don't know how it resolves itself. We don't know if the older brother, you know falls down and repents and says, I uh, was selfish and I was self-righteous and I am a sinner just like my, my brother and I'm going to come and enjoy the, the, the feast of the Father. We don't know if he digs his heels in and gets into a shouting match in with his father and, and kind of makes a scene out in the, the fields. We don't really know. And that's kind, of the, that's kind of the point, right? Jesus intentionally tells this story that kind of hangs... You know, right at the end without any like firm closure because the point is for us to see ourselves in the, the story, right? Am I, a, am I a younger brother who turns his back on God and who, who chases the life that I want by, by running away from God to a distant land? Do, do I rebel against God and look for joy and fulfillment through sinful indulgence, drunkenness, gluttony, sexual immorality, short temper, you know, do do I live as if my own appetites and my own desires and my own preferences are more important than my relationship with my heavenly father? Am I a younger brother or am I an older brother, right, who who serves God but does so really as a means to an end in order to get something from God? Who who, you know, puts together an impressive moral life where I never do anything wrong? so that I can feel good about how perfect I am, so that I can look down on everyone else and judge them and and continue to reassure myself that I'm better than them? And then do I lash out when I see other people experience unmerited favor, get more than they deserve, because I think that I know better than God, and I know whether they should receive God's blessing or not? Am I an an older brother? And this parable is, is calling to us, saying, if you're a younger brother come home, right? If you're, if you're a younger brother who has, who has made shipwreck of your life, having rebelled and run away, come home. Your father is waiting for you. Your father is looking for you. you fa- your father is hoping and expectantly waiting and longing for the day when you come home so that he can jump to his feet and run to you and give you uh, a grand welcome and a grand celebration. If you're a younger brother, come home. And if you're an older brother, Come inside. right? If you're an older brother, your father is coming to you. He's entreating you to come inside and to enjoy his presence, to enjoy this party that he has thrown for you and for your brother. He wants you to enjoy his grace. He wants you to celebrate when sinners enjoy his grace. If you're a younger brother, come home. If you're an older brother, come inside. Right? Repent of your Rebellion and repent of your religion and come enjoy the Father. Repent of your self-indulgence and repent of your self-righteousness and come enjoy the Father. And here's how we do that, right? We, we, we come enjoy the Father, we come experience the presence of the Father, not through the, the older, not through the younger son, the sinner, the tax collector, not through the older son, the Pharisee, the religious leader. We do it through the son telling the story. The, the other son, right? The, the, the eternal Son of God who came here on a, a rescue mission. Be, right, we rebelled, we made shipwreck of our lives, and the son. The Son of God came after us. He he came and found us in uh, the distant country. He put us on his shoulders and carried us home like the shepherd did uh, earlier in this chapter in verse 5. He carries us home. He reconciled. Jesus is the, the true son, the true brother, who gives everything that he has, gives his very life on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God, pay the penalty that we owe, and ensure that we, his lost, his prodigal brother, brothers and sisters could be reconciled to His gracious, loving Father. This parable is calling us to repent of our sin, to repent of our rebellion, repent of our religion, and come to Jesus, trust in Him, and enjoy the celebration, enjoy the feast that the Father has prepared for us in in Christ. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we are So thankful for your heart of love and grace and warmth towards sinners. We are so thankful that you are like this Father, right? That you give of yourself with reckless abandon in order to bless your children that you love. Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond rightly to the extravagant love and grace of God. Help us to love you more than we love the things of this world. Help us to come home. Help us to come inside and help us to enjoy the love of the Father. it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.